is the Acme Lowdown, a podcast series where we get the lowdown on the creative happenings here at Acme. Hello, I'm Emma McRae, a curator at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and I'm speaking on the phone today with Dr. Amelia Barrican about French artist Philippe Perreno, whose work will be featured in a major exhibition at Acme in December 2016. Amelia is a lecturer in art history in the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. She's described her research as focused on the relationship between art and time, which is very much the nexus of Philippe Perreno's work. As part of her work as a lecturer, writer and curator, Amelia has published books on one of Perreno's major collaborators, Pierre Huyghe, and on the notion of world-making in contemporary art and how this relates to the use of science fiction tropes by artists. All of this makes her an ideal person to provide some insight into the themes that run through Philippe Perreno's work. So, Amelia, I wanted to ask a bit about the very early days of Perreno's career, and both Perreno and Pierre Huyghe began gaining recognition for their art in the early 1990s, and they were both engaged in a very collaborative approach to art making. So I'm wondering if you are able to talk a bit about what Paris was like at that time, kind of socially and artistically, and what might have been influencing them as young artists. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it begins before Paris, because Philippe Perrino was born in Algeria in Mm. 1964, but he actually grew up in the suburbs of Grenoble in the 1970s in a kind of low-rent, low-income housing estate in Grenoble. And while Pierre was in Paris at the time, Philippe was attending École des des Beaux-Arts in Grenoble and studying a lot of film. So Grenoble at this moment was a a strange kind of city because it was run as an almost an experimental laboratory. The art school wasn't one of those old European-style buildings that taught life-drawing skills, but was actually a really new campus that stressed interdisciplinary conversations and lots of collaborations between filmmakers. So we had people like, um, I mean, Jean-Luc Godard was living in Grenoble with his partner, uh, in the 1970s, and Marie Mierville, where they were both there shooting films at Villeneuve, the same site that Philippe also worked at. Mm -hmm. And Jean-Pierre Boviola was there, and there were, you know, people inventing new kinds of technologies for cinema and filmmaking. It was sort of known as this kind of city of cineasts, where the culture of collaboration, because I guess filmmaking is, is necessarily a collaborative art form because it brings people from so many different areas together, you know, sound technicians, editors, designers, props, costume makers. So you have an expanded idea of authorship. So they had a dedicated television station that was specifically for that neighbourhood, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And they were screening experimental films. So I guess, I mean, when Philippe was at art school and he was coming into contact with people like Dominique Gonzalez-Foster and Pierre Joseph and being taught by filmmakers like Ange Lecchia, they were really thinking about art in an expanded frame uh, that had a lot to do with collaborative practice and filmmaking. And also part of that was to do with the city. So instead of very old museums like you would find in Paris, Grenoble had Le Magasin, which was this art centre built in a converted industrial warehouse that was actually used for constructing things for the 1900 World Fair. So he was seeing contemporary art in all of these uh, sort of temporary spaces, huge exhibition spaces, you know, 30 feet high ceiling and 3,000 square metres with people like Daniel Buren doing huge site-specific works. And the idea of making an exhibition into an event 
was related to the kinds of spaces that he originally saw in terms of the contemporary art market that he was in at the time. Mm, and he then studied with Daniel Buren when he then moved to Paris. Yes, he and Dominique Gonzalez-Forster both moved to Paris and were with um, Pontus Hulton and Daniel Buren for their postgraduate year in 1989, which is, or 1988, late 80s, which is when they came into contact with Pierre Huyck. Mm. And so one of the early works that Pereno did was kind of about that sense of duration. If we think about snow dancing, which he made in 1995. I love snow dancing. Okay. Could you describe what that was? Uh, it was it's such a fantastic piece. It was still like I didn't see it, but as a concept, it's just magical. So it started off with Pereno writing a script. Actually, it was a description of a party that could happen, almost like a science fictional idea where you have this image in your head and you write a script for it, and then you create an environment that might make it come true. So he writes this book where he describes a party that starts in a space that was very similar to something like Le Magasin, like an industrial warehouse. And he has all of these different points of uh, connection within this space. So, for example, in the book he describes a shoe mender. So the party has a shoe mender that is permanently installed in the party where you can visit and have revolutionary slogans cut into the soles of your shoes. And so when this is done, people can walk around the room and leave traces in the dirt and the dust on the floor that are kind of like the traces left on the first footprints of the moon. And there's a special room where people can test out their new shoes. He also wrote in a character of a locksmith who could copy your keys but was mainly obsessively remaking one key, which was the master key, to all of the doors and the buildings. So people could take this key and open every single, every single locked space like a master key. And there was a place where you could get a haircut like a mullet. <laughs> like, actually, he specifies that it's shorter in the front and longer at the back. Or if you didn't have the energy to get a haircut, you could uh, hire a wig or buy a wig, so change your outfit. Anyway, so he writes all of this down in the book, which is 53 pages long, and it took about an hour and a half to read the book from cover to finish. And then he makes this event, which is also around an hour and a half long, where all the things that are described in a linear fashion in the book occur simultaneously in this industrial warehouse space as an actual real event. So a real key maker, a real locksmith, a real shoe mender. And he talked about it, about this idea of a group situation or a collaboration or a script that brings people together just like a movie does. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, there are so many elements in there that have then continued on in a lot of his work, especially those science fiction elements that you referred to. And I think this relates a lot to your notion of world making and the way that artists have been doing that more and more these days. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the effect is for audiences when artists work in that way and kind of create worlds that people then go and inhabit for a period of time rather than creating individual objects? Mm. One of the really important things about Perono's practice is that he has never really been interested in making just discrete standalone objects. So when he thinks about an exhibition, he's really thinking about the exhibition as a whole, as a, as, as a little mini world or an ecosystem that people might be able to inhabit for a certain duration of time. And he was actually reading a lot of science fiction. He's a massive science fiction fan. He was reading um, Philip K. Dick and uh, Dan Simmons, and 
you know, he was thinking about Stephen Donaldson's work, Greg Egan, Neil Stevenson, Douglas Copeland, Dan, like he's read all of them. And one of the things that he says about science fiction is that um, it's, uh, it's like seeing the most beautiful of cinemas because it creates these images in your mind. So this idea that text might become somehow visual and the relationship between the visual, the three-dimensional, the four-dimensional and the world where you get a whole experience that is built out of this imaginary, imaginary content is, I think, something that is a through line through his whole practice. I'm not really sure if that answers your question, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does. It does. Um, but I wanted to talk as well in relation to science fiction about his film CHZ, uh, which is which stands for Continuously Habitable Zone and is um, a reference to the area around a star in which life is able to be supported on a planet. And that film is kind of, it's biological and it's cinematic and it also has a sense of a kind of alienness to it. And when I watch it, there's something in it that reminds me of Tarkovsky's film Stalker. Oh, I was yeah, just I agree. Wondering if you could, because I know you know Tarkovsky's work quite well. Um, I was wondering if it had that same connection for you. Oh, it does totally feel like that. But this idea of a zone where, you know, things are both alive and dead and that the normal laws of physics are suspended is, I think, also similar to your experience of watching CHZ. And um, just like the snow dancing project, actually, where he has this idea that, uh, you know, you might be able to make a reality from an image, like a word picture or a mental image. He had this idea that you might be able to make a reality for or from a film or have this interdependent relationship between cinema and reality. So he's in a bar talking to landscape architect Baz Smets about how you might think about this crazy idea where, you know, how does the image bring life to reality? So they actually find a piece of land in Portugal and they build a garden. But you can look at the photographs of the garden and it doesn't look anything like it looks in the film because they designed the garden for the camera. So it's almost like a set, you mm. might say. Um, and they, they found all these actual black plants and it looks like an alien, uh, like a, I don't know, like it's on another planet. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit, I was listening to something a while ago um, where someone, an academic called Suzanne Simard was talking about the idea that forests have a kind of intelligence which is in the root systems and that reminded me very much of the way that CH said kind of dives underground and takes you through that experience and you sort of feel like you're within this living creature. Yes, it almost becomes an organism because mm. it starts, I mean, it starts with this just black screen and then we kind of travel through this dark space that's full of really tangled labyrinthine roots and there's a black sky and it's all filmed day for night so all the colours are quite weird. And then he comes across this mineral river where there's these thousands of sparkling crystals almost like fossilised snow or something that are inside the terrain. But the camera moves like a drone and it's travelling across black grass and there are two suns in the sky and it's, it's a short film but it's it's almost um, arranged like a libretto or something in, in several different really distinct parts. Mm. And there's something about the way that he works or worked in creating that film and then also that he did for The Boy from Mars in which he built a physical building that was the set also for the creation of a film. And, you know, you were talking about the fact that he 
creates exhibitions as an experience that people are going to come into, but those exhibitions also have these kind of tangential roots that link back to the real world all the time? Yeah, the Boy From Mars um, work I, I, is probably a template almost for the CHZ film insofar as he's talking about, again, working with an architect for that in Francois Roche on that particular project on a site in northern Thailand that's owned by Recruit Tiruvanija to make a building that produces the scenario for a film. So he has this, he designs a pavilion that's all powered by uh, buffaloes and he thinks about this idea that the film and the building are actually kind of mutually um, constituting each other. Somehow the reality emerges in between these two forms. And he, called, he called it architecture fiction instead of science fiction. Maybe CHZ is like landscape architecture fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just wanted to ask a bit about that. You know, a lot of his work is about that relationship between fiction and reality. And he did a major project that was a collaboration with Pierre Huyg um, called No Ghost, Just a Shell. So I was just wondering if you could explain and talk a little bit about what that project is. I think, again, that was related to um, their interesting collaboration and how you might have more than one author for an image and how the image itself might have a life of its own. So he has he's very interested in this idea the image can bring life. Like, what does it mean for an image to actually create life? So No Ghost, Just a Shell started off with Pierre Huyg and Philippe Pereno purchasing the rights to an animation shell character, which is like, they're like stock characters used in a Japanese manga industry. So you buy basically a design. She looks like a sad little girl with big eyes and uh, spiky kind of hair. Mm. And they found this sign and then they gave it to a host of other artists to use or to do with whatever they wanted. So people were made animations featuring her work. They made drawings. Um, they made coffins, neon lights, and it was all brought together in this ex exhibition. But the most amazing thing about the project was what happened after that, where they assigned the rights of reproduction to this character back to the character itself, which is mm. the first in legal history. It hadn't actually ever been done before, this idea that an image could own the rights of its own reproduction. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? Mm. <laughs> it's completely crazy. Well, and it also... You know, it talks about that whole – there's something very um, alien in her image, even though she's like a manga character, but the way that he's – that that Perenno has used her image within his exhibition sometimes. You know, he's made a film using her image and created a voice and a script for her, but then that voice sometimes comes through other elements within the exhibitions and it becomes like an alien presence almost within the exhibitions. Have you, have you seen – exhibitions where he's done that? Uh, I saw the No Ghost Just a Shell exhibition, which mm. were, but not in Pereno's solo shows. So uh, there's this sense of ventriloquism where, mm. you know, so how can something speak through something else and under what terms does that voice or experience manifest? Yeah. Um, and there was things like, you know, for that project, Recruit made her speak lines from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So it's a high sort of self-reflexivity about the reality of that character, how characters can create reality and how reality is informed by characters, which are similar concerns to those that were being dealt with by Pierre Huyghe in the 90s as well. It's one of those projects that I think really cemented um, the directions, the future directions of their practice. Yeah. Um, and I just have one other thing that I was 
going to ask about in relation to re- fiction and reality because for ACME, the exhibition is going to uh, be something of a retrospective for Philippe's films. And when people come down to the gallery, they're going to see an environment which is almost um, a little bit Lynchian in terms of the way it looks. There's a lot of red and it's an obviously constructed cinematic environment. And this is kind of science fiction-esque a little bit and a bit otherworldly. Um, but I'm just wondering if you have a sense of what it does to our sense of our own everyday reality when we go into a space that blurs fiction and reality so much. I mean, I guess that's kind of, it's almost like cinema. It's like going into cinema and, you know, when you come out of a cinema and you can feel slightly bewildered. I mean, I can't see how it feels for anyone else, but um, but I guess there is something about being guided through a space in a particular way, like Perenno often does, and I think this is also important, like the durational qualities of his works where you are instructed in some respects to stay with something for longer than you might or move faster than you would or think about this, uh, the way that this particular piece is illuminated or those physical elements of the, play, the piece actually become really uh, organic in some mm-hmm. respects and all the, all the boundaries between the individual works of art are subsumed by this sort of broader experience of them as a whole. I mean, it's what good curators do, but it's also what stage script people do and it's also what, like, uh, filmmakers do. So mm-hmm. I like the idea of thinking about the exhibition as a piece of cinema. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see when it's finally built. Yes, I can't wait. Fantastic. It's really been great to speak with you about this, Amelia. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Emma. I look forward to the show. Bye. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.